2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. It reads, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so here in this passage, Paul begins, as he's writing Corinth, that the first thing that the the emphasis in this passage is that we don't lose heart. He starts his comparison between the the outer man and the inner man, the, the, the flesh that we can touch and this life that we can see and feel in contrast with the inner man, which is that of our spiritual nature, that which is eternal, that which kind of has a problem when we see death, the things that we grapple with. He says we don't lose heart even though we have this light affliction. Like I don't care how bad of turmoil, like you could be going through horrible turmoil. Paul went through everything, including his, his basically he was executed for his faith. He says this is a light affliction in comparison to the things that are coming and this affliction that we're going through that God is using it as a refining process in us for this weight of glory of the things to come. Whenever we see a therefore in the Bible, we ask, what's it there for? Because therefore is always kind of in response to something else. Like, based on the things I've said, therefore I'm saying this. In today's passage, there's something like seven therefores. Like, we're going to move from one therefore to the next therefore to the following. It's just everything's a therefore here. But this therefore links back up to verse 14. See, he's comforting them. They're going, he's going through a hard time. He's talking to the church in Corinth. And in verse 14, he says, knowing that he, that's God, who raised the Lord Jesus, will raise us also with Jesus and will pre- present us with you. So he starts out by saying, like, listen, Jesus raised from the dead. And if we die and when you die, we all are going to be raised up, the bodily resurrection, that, that there's hope beyond this life. And Jesus raised from the dead, so we no longer have to fear death. Is kind of the essence of what he says. And then in verse 16, he says, Therefore, because of the resurrection, we don't lose heart. Like, no matter that we suffer and we go through all of this stuff, we don't lose heart because ultimately Jesus rose from the dead, so we know that God is bigger than anything that we're going through. So anything that we suffer through, God is using to refine us. And he goes on Now that he's going to talk about death, moving into chapter 5, he says, For we know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So now he starts contrasting. He's like, no, I have this heavenly body and I have this earthly body. And this earthly body, which he refers to a tent, kind of this temporary dwelling, a sort of tabernacle, this place that is just, you know, kind of, we're just passing through this body, however many years we have. He says, if this tent's torn down, if, you're, if you die or in the process of dying, not if you die, when you die, and you go through the process of dying, don't lose heart because this isn't your hope. There's something better. There's a building, not a tent, a building. There, there's, there's this looking to like, hey, if you die, it's better. There's, I know you, we can't really joke about fires. And I know Mara, like Mara went through like, like I say this and I go, I'm going to get in trouble for saying what I'm about to say. Mara lost her house in the, the two fires ago and got severely burned. And so I know fires are serious. 
But there's always a side of me when the fires come through. Like, Anna's very sentimental. Like, we got to get all the pictures and we can't. And I'm like, man, if our house gets burned down, like, insurance? Like, we'll get a much nicer house. And it's like, no, but the pictures. I'm like, yeah, but the house. Like, it'll be brand new. And so I know we're not supposed to joke. Like, it's kind of like, no, this one's little. I know that there's, we can then make some, you know, like, I'm. so it's kind of, my house has been fine ever since. But Paul's like, there's insurance, there's hope. Like, hey, even if what you have is totally demolished, it's going to be okay. He goes on to say in verse 2, for indeed in this house, so this body that we have today, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven to contrast this new building. And as much as we have put it on, we will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. So he starts talking about this tent and groaning. And I start hearing tent and groaning. I think of Anna. I love camping. I love like the outdoors. I love roughing it. I love being out there. My wife, however, is a little bit different. And so when we first got married, we'd been married for, I forget exactly how long. It'd been maybe a year, maybe two years. And her family kind of does an outing, like family get together. And this year was going to be up at the Sequoia National Park. I'm like, okay, this is great. Her whole family's going to be there. So she wants to go camping. But if I have like a super pleasant experience, then she'll want to go camping more. And so I went to the, the store. I bought a real big tent. I bought an air mattress. Like this is, and this is, I'm active duty Navy SEAL, used to like sleeping on the ground with rocks and freezing and really roughing it. But I'm like, I'm going, we're going to get a super big, warm sleeping bag. It's going to be wonderful. And in the process, I'd, I'd opened up the box that the air mattress came in, and there was a bunch of paperwork and, you know, like a little plastic bag and stuff. I mean, who needs that? So I just trashed all of that stuff, and I threw it, I threw it into my, 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 my para bag that I'm ready to go on the yacht. And I had, a, I had a Bible college class that I had to complete, and so we, I finished that about 7 o'clock at night. We drive all through the night. We show up to Sequoia, find our camp spot. The, the family's got a nice motorhome. And Anna's like, I'm so tired. I'm like, don't worry, honey. You just stay in the car. I'll take care of this. And, and uh, I get the air mattress out. I'm starting to like, okay, let's start inflating it. I bought this cigarette lighter, you know, pump, plug it in. And that thing was so loud. It's three in the morning. I'm like, oh, bummer. Like, I can't use this. And so then I'm like blowing up the air mattress at altitude at three in the morning to like the headlights getting dizzy and I'm blowing and blowing. And with every breath I see like this and then it goes back down. I'm like, what's going on here? I'm like, okay, let's check the situation out. So I'm searching all around like the bag and I realize that there's the valve where you can let the air out. There's no cap on it. Like this is ridiculous. How can it not come with a cap? And I start thinking, I'm like, that was that bag. Is it possible that that they like, like had the cap in that bag? Like, why would they do that to me? And so then I like go to the car and I'm search I'm searching for a light or something to make fire with because if I burn it, I'm gonna seal it. That's my plan. And it's like, what's going on, honey? Oh, everything's fine. Everything's under control. She's like, you know, we can just go to the motorhome. I'm like, no, we cannot go to the motorhome. We are camping here. So then I, I thought I kind of sealed it. I got the air mattress up, what I thought was acceptable. I'm kind of frustrated. Now it's 4 a.m. We lay down in the mattress. 
And it's kind of, yeah, slowly, you couldn't hear the air. And then there's rocks, and Anna's like moaning all night, like, come on, can we go to the motorhome? Can we just get to the motorhome? This is miserable. Like, honey, no, we're having fun. We're having fun. Like, we're good. And so whenever I see this, I, like hearing this picture, like during this time when I was going through the hard time, it was very close to this situation. And that's kind of how we are in these bodies. And the older we get and the more time you spend with elderly people, like younger people can just hop up from stuff. Like you can sit down and hop up. But when you're older, and I don't care what kind of shape you're in, you go from sitting or the down position to up, there's always like, ugh, ugh. And then sometimes there's the standing. There's You can stand up, but you're still kind of hunched over. And it's like, the, all right, let's get going. You know, there's this tent. There's just groaning. It's painful. Now everybody's like stretching out their back going, oh, I feel it. Paul saying in this tent, like it hurts. We groan for the new one. But at the same time, we don't want to be found naked. There's like this fear of death. Because for us, death isn't life. Death from our perspective, because none of us have gone to the other side and then come back other than Jesus to tell, about, to tell us about it. So we view death like a candle that's been snuffed out. It goes from what we think is life to nothingness. But the Bible, look at this phrase. At the end of verse 4, so that what is mortal, that is the things that die, things that pass away, will be swallowed up by life. And so this picture of death that the Bible gives is that when you breathe your last breath, it's not a candle being swallowed up. You're being swallowed up by life. And that's so much different than our inclination dealing with life and death. He goes on in verse 5. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the spirit as a pledge. And as Paul begins talking about the, our, our inner man and our, our outer man and our inner man and this hope of our new building contrasted with this tent, Paul understands, like God understands that this is hard for us because it's by faith, because there's no like, hey, can we, you know, you check into a hotel can I go see a couple of the rooms? Go check the rooms. No, I don't like this room. Or I really like this room. This is great. I'll take that room. There's no sort of, hey, can, God, can we go check out heaven to see if we want to rent it, to see if we want to move in there or not? It's totally on the basis of faith that we see the resurrection. That's the evidence that Jesus conquered death, that he rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. And I understand that that might be a struggle for us. That's why we give out the case for Christ, so that you can investigate the facts of who Christ is. And he says that once you've believed in Christ, that God has given us a pledge. This is a literally a down payment. When we buy a house, you put a good faith deposit. You reach a certain point where you don't get that deposit back. And God talks about the spirit in the same sort of terminology that, that you know, has pledged us, has promised us that when you trust in Christ, that you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. If you'll turn with me over to Ephesians, it's towards the back of the Bible to the right. You'll hit, hold your place in Corinthians. You'll hit Galatians, Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. We read this kind of, this is the nuts and bolts. This is the Christianity 101. How does this all happen? Verse 13, in him, that's Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation. Paul says, okay, at some point you hear about the message, the gospel. The gospel simply is that Jesus died for your sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried. He was there for three days. On the third day, he rose from the grave. He appeared to many people. In 1 Corinthians 15, it lists upwards of like 600 people that at the time of Paul's writing, if you went to them, they would say, yes, absolutely, I saw Jesus. He appeared to me after he was dead as a doornail. We touched him, we knew it, and we'll te- And most of these people ended up giving their lives in that testimony. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13 says, at some point, all of us, and if you're in this room, you've heard it now. You've heard the message. You've heard that Jesus loves you, that he died for you. But, it, but at some point, it requires us saying, I believe. And then we're told that when we believe, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his own glory. Going back to 2 Corinthians. So we're told that God has given us the Holy Spirit. And see, as a Christian, I'm not perfect. And I don't have to prove to anybody in this room that I'm not perfect. I love it. <laughs> and the more you know me, the more you say, ah, yeah, we, we, we're with you, brother. But see, when I fall short, when I sin, I feel guilty. I feel convicted. Like, this isn't what God wants. And see, now sometimes we think, oh, that's a bad thing. I don't see this is a good thing. This is like a this is a. The deposit, this is God has given me the spirit and the spirit works in me so that my conscience is troubled when I sin against God. This is an assurance because I know that the old gunner, I didn't care about like the conscience. Like I can just kind of push through. And so when we have like when we have these times of struggle, when we face death or we face things that should worry us and suddenly it's like wow i just like there's this peace it doesn't make any sense to me like cognitively in my brain i know i should be freaking out and i should be really worried right now but i'm at peace like oh that's the spirit god has given me this this that passes all understanding so verse six we hit our therefore so he says okay we've been given this spirit as a pledge as this down payment that god has given us this down payment into the day when he takes us home, when we get our new bodies, when we go to be with him in heaven forever. Because of this deposit, he says, verse 6, therefore, being always of good courage, he's going to use this phrase twice in this section, being always of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight, for we are of good courage. I say, and I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So he's saying, hey, have good courage. We have the deposit. We don't, like, don't worry about death. He's like, but the, the reality is, is the more I think about life and death and, and not being afraid of dying, like the reality is, is that if we're here in this body, we're absent from the Lord. Now, as Christians, we have a relationship with the Lord. We understand who God is at some level. But 1 Corinthians 13 makes it clear that that. We have this dim vision of who he is. We, don't full, we can't fully see who he is in this life. And in death, we're fully with him. And Paul looks at this and he's like, man, well, the more I think about this, I, I actually would rather be dead. I would rather be in the next life because there I'm fully in, the God, fully in God's presence. 
I would rather to be absent from this body and present with him. And in the midst of this, he inserts this phrase that a lot of, you know, what I call Christianese, you'll hear Christians kind of say, and maybe they know or they don't know where it comes from. This whole, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Paul's saying, I understand this all sounds crazy. Because if we just take what we, like the human senses, you know, smell, touch, sight, the other ones, I think two more. I went to public school, so I struggle with these things. Taste and hearing, taste and hearing yeah. The two I struggle with, you know, that's, I've melted my taste buds and my ears are going, so I, I forgot about those already. But if we look at this, we think, no, we just see somebody die. There's... There's no way that we can make this logical leap that that anything better is happening because all we see is the life is gone and the body remains. Paul says, no, but we walk by faith. And faith, according to Hebrews, if my Bible memory is good, I think it's Hebrews 11.1.1. I got some nods. Faith is basically the assurance of things hoped for. Like that we can't see it, but we know that there's evidence that, that God has demonstrated to us through the life of Christ, through his word, through prophecy. There's things that God has said that he's shown himself to be true. And so when he speaks of the afterlife and then we see the evidence of the resurrection of Christ, we can say, no, I have faith in this. Like I believe that based on evidence, like I have hope there. And he says, you know, that's where my good courage comes from. Verse 9, he goes on, another therefore. He says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether he is good or bad. And I love, like, I feel like like the mind of Christ, like he, he gets talking. He says, oh, I'd be so good. I would rather... Be with the Lord than be here in this flesh. And then I start thinking that thought. Okay, Paul, if that's the case, well, why don't you just take your life? Go run out on the freeway. And if that's, if that's really, like, what's stopping you from, like, going there? Like, play your cards. You know, put, put your money on the table. Or I think something like, yeah, you put your money on the table. Go for it. But then he goes on to say, No. Like, it's not that, like, what I want to do, whether I'm home, and I think home here refers to heaven, or absent, meaning that he's absent from heaven in this body. He's like, I want to be pleasing to him, that's God. He says, so if I'm here, and if I have life and breath, and God hasn't taken me home, that means he has a plan for me to do something. Ephesians 2 and 8 talks about, for by grace you have been saved, it's not of works. Then verse 10 talks about, that he has created good works for us to do in this lifetime. So if you're here, if you're alive, if you're breathing, God has things for you to do. Even though the better stuff is yet to come while we're here, he has us doing stuff to be pleasing to him. So Paul says, well, my ambition, even though I'd rather be home with the Lord, even though I'm suffering and there's a lot of hurt and pain and sorrow in this life, as long as I'm here, I want to please him. He says the day is coming. And he talks about this day, the Bema seat, this judgment seat of Christ, that whether you're in Christ or out of Christ, that all will stand before him. And we're going to give an account. And if you're in Christ, I don't think it's about necessarily judgment, but I think it's more of like a review of your life where he can bless you. I think it's like a high-speed PowerPoint presentation on your life. 
And I go, yeah, I handled that one pretty good, you know, like, and I, and kind of going through the whole process. And in this, like, this whole study this week that I've been going through, like, with the language and, and reading stuff, like, Proverbs, I, there's, I have it right here in my notes because I only have one page of notes here. Proverbs in 915 verses addresses the mouth 150 times. A sixth of Proverbs deals with our language. That Jesus says words like in Matthew 12:36 that every careless word you'll give an account for. Like to think that God cares less about this preaching in my mouth than how I talked, you know, this after, this morning before church. You know, careless words. And this idea that as Christians we're going to stand before him. And so I want to please him. He loves me. And it's not, a, it's not a fear like I'm earning my salvation or anything like that. But he created me. He's entrusted me and you with certain gifts, certain qualities. We're all different. And he's wired you specifically for you to basically use for his glory. And he's saying, well, how'd you do with what I gave you? And he's going to, you know, I think at this time, there's going to be some good stuff. There's a great book out there, The Bema Seat. And it's this fictional story about this guy who thinks he dies has a dream, and God stands before him. It's a beautiful story this day, all to end with him waking up in the morning with his alarm clock, realizing that it was just a dream. But the dream so shook him up that he said, no, I need, to, I need to start living my life to prepare for that day when I see the Lord. Paul continues in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, this is the foundation of wisdom. Everywhere in the Bible, everything starts with the fear of the Lord. We don't like this as Americans. There hasn't been a book written on the fear of the Lord in over a hundred years because we don't deal with it. But Proverbs, Solomon says that the, be, that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that this is the foundational point, that God is the creator and sustainer of the whole world, that he gives us every breath, everything that we see and know, it's because he has given it to us. He is all-powerful. We sing songs, almighty. There should be a healthy dose of reverence, fear, just natural fear. But he loves us. And Paul says, knowing that the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not, again, commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be poured, to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in the appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. For we are of sound mind, it is for you. Now, this is, I don't have time to kind of go into this, but this is sort of, this is a section in this passage that we wanted to start doing some digging. What's he talking about? Obviously, there's a history that Paul has with the people in Corinth, and there's been some challenging of his motives and their motives. And he's saying, no, I have a fear of God, and in my heart, ultimately, I want to please him. It's not for outward appearances. It's not for selfish gain. Like everything I'm doing, it's driven by that I have a a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. And here's Paul, the man who thought he was sinless before God. He was on the road to Damascus to kill and arrest Christians. He'd already killed Christians for their profession in Christ when God's glory appeared in him, made him blind for three days. So when Paul talks about the fear of God, this guy means he was afraid of God. Like that God woke him up, that Jesus stepped out of heaven and gave a special appearance to Paul. Paul says, this is what motivated me for the rest of my life. I'm not trying to make money off of you people. I'm not trying to do this. I love you. And God has revealed himself to me. And my life's drive is this. 
Verse 14, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. I think some translation reads, compels us. That he saw the holiness of God and understood God's holiness. If you track Paul's writings, he starts out with that he was the least of all the apostles. Then he, later in his writing, says, oh, I'm the least of all the saints. And then finally, in his last part, his last chronologically in his life, he says, I am the worst of all sinners. And it's not that Paul was like getting worse in his walk with God. He was coming into a greater understanding of God's mercy and grace towards him and his ultimate love for him, that he was overwhelmed by the love of Christ, that God loves us so much that he would send his son to die, which this ultimately this passage links back to chapter four, verse 14. And he says, it's this love of Christ that God loves all of us. This is what's compelling me, that we have a God that loves us so much that he's going out of his way to rescue us. He says, having concluded this, that one died for all, that's Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross, he died for all. Like I love my reformed brothers, my, my Calvinist brothers, like I do, I love them but I absolutely have a hard time when they say that Christ only died for those, the elect. Overwhelmingly, that Christ died for all. That everything was placed upon him. He died for all, therefore all died. See, we're we're all dead. We're separated from God. And from here on out, it's what we do with him. He paid the price for our sin. And when we stand for God, if you're apart from Christ, you're going to stand judgment for rejection of him. He paid for your sin. He goes on to say, okay, for one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that the purpose statement of this, that they who live might no longer live for themselves. That is exactly the opposite of the American dream. The American dream is that we live for ourselves We get rich, we build our castles, we do as much as we can. Christianity is exactly the opposite. That Christ loved us so much that that love is so overwhelming that we're no longer going to live for ourselves. But who are we going to live for? But for him, that's Christ who died and rose again on their behalf, or I would write on my behalf. That great hymn that I love so much, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He died for me that I might have life. Therefore, my ambition in this life is to live completely and totally for him. It's not about me anymore. Living for Gunner didn't work out that great. Living for him works out wonderful. Doesn't mean easy. He goes on to say, verse 16, Therefore, therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. See, before you come to Christ, Jesus is this man who kind of lived 2,000 years ago. There's a lot of great claims on his life. He's a good teacher, maybe a moral guy, kind of helped change the world for good. We knew Christ all in that way. We see people in this way. We see family members that are sometimes difficult to get along with. And Paul says, because of this, therefore, that one died for all, therefore all died. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who paid it all. Now, when we see people, we don't see them in the flesh. 
the people who drive you the, the baddiest, we all have them. I'm dealing with stuff right now. And, and even though sometimes I fail in my reaction, that like just like the people that normally drive us the baddest are the ones that have all our buttons, and we tend to like slip with our words. But then the conviction that no, that person, Jesus on the cross, loved them so much that He bore every single sin that they had committed or what would commit. And so therefore, we need to see people through his eyes that he loves every person. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. And if you're sitting here today and you've trusted in Christ, he's forgiven you. All the old things are gone. You're a new creature in Christ before God in Christ. What he sees is Christ's perfect life. That he lived. It's been imputed to you. It's been credited to your account. Your old life, your sin, your, your, your evil, your darkness. That's what God saw in Christ on the cross. And it was placed upon him. And for me, becoming a Christian, I could understand that Christ forgave me. But it wasn't good enough because I couldn't forgive myself. And see, when we do that, we rob Christ of his things. So you need to forgive yourself. Allow yourself to, Jesus paid it all. You're a new creature, but that's not fair. No, it's not fair. It's grace. That which we don't deserve, God has blessed us with. Verse 18, and from verse 18 to the very end, we're going to see one, two, three, four, five reconciliations. This is the whole like purpose statement mission of every Christian is reconciliation. Verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's the first reconciliation. See, apart from Christ, our sin separates us from God. There's a great divide, but Christ on the cross created this act of reconciliation that we're now, there's the potential for relationship between sinful man and holy God. He's speaking to Christians. The assumption is that you've believed. And upon belief, you've received the spirit. You've been reconciled to God. And in verse 18, gave us, that's you and me, the church, those who have trusted in Christ, not this building. This is just a building where the church meets. The building is not the church. Those people who have trusted in Christ, we're the church. The church meets at this building. I hope that makes sense. And gave us, you, me, the ministry, the work, the service here of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So this whole picture, you've been reconciled to God. God has made peace with you and him. And then he's given you the ministry, this responsibility. It seems absolutely crazy to me in the flesh. Why would he trust us with such a thing? He's trusted us with this ministry of reconciliation. That all the people we know apart from Christ, they're not reconciled with God. And our 
our ministry that God has given us is to help us reconcile people with God, to take their hand and to place it in God's hand and let healing happen there. Verse 20, another therefore. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. That is so convicting to me. When I think of the turmoil of people that kind of irritate me and I want to get even with them and I want to, you know, prove how right I am and how wrong they are. And then I read this and I like want my retribution from them as a Christian. And I read this and God says, no, God in heaven, the creator and sustainer of the whole universe, Gunner, has you as an ambassador and his appeal to reconciliation with that person to him is through you. Oh, oh Lord, <laughs> I hope you saw that one on the cross because I've blown that a bunch of times. And we all have, like we all have. But he's given us the spirit as a deposit that's working in us. It's refining us. He's chipping away at us to make us as pure gold. And he says, we beg you. Paul is talking to this church in Corinth. And if you know anything about the church in Corinth, it's a mess. These are not, this is, this is the bad example in the whole Bible. This is the Jerry Springer of Christians. Is, I mean, this, it, it was bad. And he says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is a beautiful chapter. This is, this is Christianity 101. The five kind of things that I see, that the essence of this, the first thing that I see from all of this is the number one thing that we understand as Christians from a biblical revelation. Biblical revelation, I say that right? Yeah, okay. Sin has messed everything up. In Genesis chapter 3, that cute little Sunday school story that we all know about Adam and Eve eating the fruit, kind of made it into like they were out there eating Fuji apples and it wasn't really that big of a deal. And every, like this is, this is catastrophic rebellion to God's creation. That in that rebellion, everything changed. Death entered the world. When we see our bodies breaking down, when we see a loved one dying slowly or quickly or however, the, the reason is that sin has entered the world and brought death. And we're told that Jesus, all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15, God made the promise that one day he'll send his Messiah to come and restore all of this. And in this chapter of Corinthians, looking back to the cross, Paul says, Jesus came, he conquered death, he rose from the grave, and because of this, we don't lose heart. That Jesus came to fix this problem. Because he raised from the dead, everything has been changed. That when we see death as Christians, we no longer fear death because we know it's not the end. We have a new tent in heaven's a new building in heavens that's eternal. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain. That's where our hope is. And while we remain, as long as we're here today, the Bible makes it clear that our role is this ministry of reconciliation. 
That's why we exist. And I encourage you, if you're here and you don't know Christ or you're not sure, and in our culture we kind of think that Christianity is kind of like, well, if you kind of have been to a church once in your life and you loosely are affiliated with the Christian church, like it's about religion, it's not. It's not. It's about a relationship with God through Christ. It's as simple as believing, and the Bible makes it clear that when you believe, yes, Lord, I believe that you died for me, we're told at that moment, the Spirit seals us. And then from that moment, in God's perfect plan, he's then entrusted us with this ministry of reconciliation, which I think going to church, being in a Bible-believing church where you're growing in the Word, growing in your relationships, God's going to reconcile issues in, in your own life. He's going to help relationships of people around you, and then he's going to use you as an ambassador. And I think I'm done. So let's pray. (laughs) Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, your word talks over and over again about Mourning with those who are mourning, rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. And so often these these things happen simultaneously. It's not as though we have one chapter where we're mourning and then the next day we're rejoicing. Sometimes we are complex creatures because we're created in the image of a complex God. And so, Lord, during this season in our church, there is so much to be rejoicing over. You're doing so much good. But, Lord, we... We mourn the sadness, Lord, of those who have lost dear loved ones. Father, we thank you for the hope in the afterlife that we know that this life is not all that's about. Father, we walk by faith. And Lord, we don't always do it perfectly. And so, Lord, as that man asked Christ in the New Testament, Lord, Lord, where our faith is weak, Lord, we ask that you'd increase it. Lord, help us to develop our faith, Lord, that we would grow in our trust in you. Father, we desire to be reconciled to you. We thank you that Christ made that possible. And Lord, we ask you that as we live this life, as long as we're here, Lord, that you would help us um, to learn to understand what it means to be your, your ambassador. Lord, that you would give us a heart of reconciliation. Lord, we confess that our Our flesh is such a powerful agent, Lord, wanting retribution, wanting judgment. Lord, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to share the grace that we have so abundantly received from you. Uh, Lord, we thank you and praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.